Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. I am honored that you are with us for yet another fantastic foray into the world of solar energy and the leaders that are taking this industry forward. This week, we get to soak in the wisdom of an industry pioneer in the solar distribution business model. Boaz Seufer is a solar pioneer for the last 20 plus years. He's currently the director of solar trade for the Americas at Baywa RE, where he's been since 2010, having been acquired as the first acquisition outside of the EU by that company and a previous entity that he was involved in called Focused Energy. Today, we get into Boaz's focus on co-creating a culture that truly values and contributes to personal and professional development, something that we care a lot about here on Suncast. We also take a look at how he enjoys solving complex challenges and how that's kept him in the renewables business in particular. And if this is your jam, if you like this kind of leadership insight, then I would really encourage you, go check out the 375 additional founder stories and startup advice that we've got over at mysuncast.com. You can also sign up to receive a notification every time the next episode drops there every Tuesday for tactical and practical advice and every Thursday for deep dive insights just like this one for leaders, CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy revolution. For now, get ready as we tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. This is another powerful conversation here on Suncast. So here's a little aside. I'm actually recording this after the fact because I wanted to make sure that I get this across to you. The title of this episode is The Philosopher CEO because Boaz and I do get into a lot of conversations that really dig at the fabric of the age-old question, who am I and why am I here? It's much more than just a how'd you build this company kind of episode. It's the first time I've talked with anyone on the show about plant medicine and Boaz is a worthy sage to have this discussion, as you'll see. Stick around to the outro, and you'll be able to have access to some bonus content that we mention here in this episode. I hope that you enjoy this. I did. Well, as you just heard, uh, Boaz is joining us today from Bewa, where Many of you may recognize him as the co-CEO of their North America business, and he has been involved in many aspects of the solar distribution business here in the U.S. and uh, increasingly in Mexico and beyond. He's got a storied career uh, we're going to dive into, but I think it's one that you'll enjoy as a non-traditional path to leadership and success as measured by some. Boaz loves to read and uh, loves philosophy and psychology, and our conversation here, I'm sure, will dip in and out of uh, the esoteric as well as the practical uh, as we discuss how Boaz has uh, has been leaning into the renewable energy industry for two decades. Boaz, welcome to Suncast. 
It's a pleasure to be with you, Nico. Thank you. Man, it's my pleasure. Uh, I can hardly believe, uh, and this is just the nature of, I think, the pandemic, but also uh, trying to find time to get together when uh, at least one of us is running an important company. Um, it's been a year, <laughs> a whole year since our pre-interview. Um, so I'm glad that we finally get a chance to chat. Likewise. Boaz, I would love to hear what was the conversation like around the dinner table in your family as a young person? Yeah. So my family is really smart. <laughs> um, my, uh, my, my brother, there are stories about him um, reading the New York Times when they, when they put him on it to change his diaper. And he, he got like a 1600 on the SATs back when that was a perfect score when he was in eighth grade or something. And um, he, he reads uh, like 10 or 12 lines at a time when he, when he reads. So he, he blows through like wow. spy novels in half an hour, 45 minutes, you know. Oh my God. My father was a molecular neurochemist and cell biologist. And my mother was a Juilliard trained pianist. And uh, the atmosphere was very academically oriented. I, I remember a lot of times trying to convince somebody of a point and not being able to. De- debate was kind of rampant, but but the very intellectual kind of debate, right? Where where at least I yeah. interpret it as uh, trying to to prove a point and be right, and those kinds of dynamics. So there there was there was a lot of debate, I think, at the dinner table. I don't mean to get too far afield here, but have you? Read or even listened to, as I usually do, Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights? No. Okay, so I don't know. I mean, I, I would recommend that folks listen to it because I think it's a fantastic book. But he talks specifically about the difference, the way that we see discourse that sees things from two different sides and try to find a winning side or a winning argument. As you said, you try to convince someone. Uh, and having been in a conversation where uh, he was observing these two gentlemen in Africa uh, have a discussion and he stepped in and tried to take sides with one of them. And they looked at him and said, would you please stop trying to convince one of us that you or he is right? We're just trying to understand one another. Yeah. That was really powerful. Yeah. I I think I picked up on that in Uganda. Um, I I was there last year. Maybe it's already two. Yeah, it's two years ago because we had a pandemic. I was there with two of my kids. And the thing we were noticing right away was folks in Uganda often say, hmm, instead of responding, <laughs> right? They, they're just kind of taking in what they heard and, and they just process for a while. And then maybe they'll, like a Quaker, right? Be, be moved to say something and say it. But, but the, the first response is like digestion. Yeah. Yeah. You came into a family where academic knowledge and, and I would probably suggest achievement was valued. How did that inform who served as role models for you early in life? Early in life, I was really excited about sports stars. By the time I was 11 or 12, something like that, I was getting really passionate about music. And, and by the time I was 14, m- music was a huge part of my life. Um, I, was, I was probably playing guitar six, seven, eight hours a day. And I was listening to a ton of music. You couldn't separate me from my... Sony Walkman um, and and uh, <laughs> a, f- a few choice tapes, so I would say my my role models then were were really um, 
kind of in the in the arts, um, which is very different from from the academic world, right? Well, it is and it isn't. Your mother would say it's not very different from the academic world mm-hmm. at all because the circle of fifths is math after all. Yeah, yeah. So if you actually get into the fundamentals, music is math. Yeah. And uh, and mathematicians would say math is music. And then the linguists would say, it's all just language. <laughs> That's right. That's right, it is. Well, which of, of those sort of different angles on the academic pursuit did you pursue as an, as an adult? How did that inform your story going into you know, college or trying to decipher what career you wanted to follow? I, like you, had a, a musical background and uh, was very perplexed about whether or not I was going to make money as an artist or just enjoy art for its expression. Yeah, I think we all go through that, right? So so I studied music theory in college um, as well as guitar and composition and uh, was playing in three or four bands and singing in a chorus and and it was awesome. And I, I left college early thinking I'm ready to just go start a band. Like we're, we're going to make this happen. Um, I moved to uh, Penn State uh, where I had some friends that I was playing music with um, and they were recording a lot of music. And in fact, some of them were involved with the band that became Marcy Playground. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was called Zog Bog Bean back then. That's hilarious. Um, and yeah, I was going to settle down and, and start recording there, but I couldn't make ends meet um, in, the, in the meantime. And so I started having to have a job and that started cutting into my, my music time. And then um, a couple years into that, my girlfriend at the time became my wife and we became pregnant with our first kid. Uh, We bought the piece of land off grid that started this whole different um, train moving in New Mexico. So, yeah. And you're, you were in New York and then Pennsylvania. What made you move to New Mexico? My, my older brother was out here then only briefly. Um, So, so I came out with the idea of crashing on his floor for a while and um, nice. and he he left and went back to to college to get his master's, <laughs> and I stuck around. <laughs> and I love New oh, Mexico. Funny. So tell me, yeah, and New Mexico has such a deep, rich history. And uh, for those who maybe don't know it, uh, we'll tell a little bit more about how really how the off grid solar market that we appreciate was not just born in Northern California. There was a lot of work with Dankoff and others down in New Mexico. And certainly we have the, one of the national labs to thank for that as well. So you bought, you decided to buy this property and build an off-grid home. How did this off-grid home lead to uh, eventually a pursuit of renewable energy and uh, in particular becoming uh, one of the very early employees at Positive Energy, one of the fabled New Mexico uh, solar companies? So, so I had $2,000 to build a house and power it, <laughs> which is a ridiculous proposition. I built a house out of, out of straw bales, um, just a 200 square foot cabin. Um, and, and, and that took, I think, 1,500 of the 2,000. And with the other $500, I walked down to Positive Energy and I said, what can I do with this? And Alan Sindelar uh, thought that was really funny and brave and uh, helped me put together... I think like a, a two battery system with a single 50 watt panel used and no inverter and a couple of DC lights. Um, so I could have light in the cabin. Um, and, and he, he and I hit it off. I, I don't remember who 
who proposed the idea, but I needed steadier work. And it was 1999, so he needed help. Um, during the during 1999, a lot of people were putting in backup power systems because they were afraid of yeah, Y2K. Y2K. Uh, they were slammed. Um, they needed help out in the field. They needed help on the phones. Uh, and and mm-hmm. so I was lucky enough to to get hired as employee number three, I think, at Positive Energy. You told me that you didn't spend a lot of time in the field, in fact. No, it was just maybe the first the first couple months um, I was in the field. And I don't know if it was mm-hmm. because I, I wasn't very talented um, at the field work <laughs> um, or if uh, Alan uh, needed help in the office more and, and thought I had some potential there. But I ended up starting to do some purchasing and starting to do all the initial intake for new customers. Um, which, you know, Positive Energy wasn't a very sales-oriented organization. Um, so it was it was a very technical, consultative process. Um, but I was doing the front end of that. And then they, you know, because they were dealing with some growth, um, they were also doing strategic planning and kind of um, more evolved, sophisticated processes that I'd never been exposed to before. And so um, I got to participate in those too, which was great. Can you give me an example? And and are they are they still tools that you use today in your as in your role as CEO? So Positive Energy was in the Santa Fe Business Incubator, and the Business Incubator was a really cool scene because not only did they give you access to a fax machine and printers and stuff like that that incubators do, but they also connected us with mentors. And I remember a guy named Robert Klein, who I believe was a a business professor from the University of Texas, and and he'd also run a number of companies. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember his resume very well. Um, but he spent some time with us um, just talking about how we sell solar and are we selling the technical aspects of solar or are we making the transition to selling the features and benefits of having a PV system? And, you know, yeah. the kind of question that our industry um, is ans- answering iterations of um, on an ongoing basis. Right. So, so I remember that. Yeah. Could you explain turn of the, uh, turn of the century, uh, beginning of the aughts, oh, man. Yeah. the, the general, <laughs> I know, right. It's so, <laughs> it sounds so funny to say it. I mean, I was in college at the time and I'm, I marvel that you were building an off-grid home at that time, but help us understand broadly the ecosystem. How, how was it being built that, that this the, this ecosystem that would serve homeowners to meet their power needs independently, and you know, I've had I've had folks like our friend Sam Sam Vanderhoof who talks all about how the Northern California market was beginning to blossom, really uh, on the heels as as we've heard of needing off grid power for some medicinal plant industries. But tell me, why New Mexico, and what did that ecosystem around Positive and and Dankoff look like, and how was it growing from two thousand to say two thousand ten? There were a few seeds of solar that are that are actually really old in New Mexico, back to the 50s and 60s, even when passive solar design was emerging, and um, and 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 at the forefront of passive solar design were some folks in New Mexico, some of whom I had the the great fortune to work with 30 years into their career and at the beginning of mine, folks like. Uh, Bristol Stickney and Mark Chalum. And then Active Solar was huge in New Mexico also um, during the Carter administration tax credits. Um, and that kind of spawned 
an, an atmosphere, for lack of a better word, in which solar was was pretty widely accepted. So obviously the industry crashed when the Carter tax credits went away, and then it kind of grew up again around off-grid living, remote water pumping, and continually passive and active um, solar heating. So what you have, or at least what I had access to early in my career, you know, Positive Energy was a spinoff of Wendy Dankoff's company, which I think was called Power Light, which went back to 1977, I think. I think he sold the retail part of his business and that's what became Positive Energy. So, so Wendy was around and then Bristol Stickney was involved with Positive Energy because um, they co-developed solar heating control product together called the Seth system. So I was driving around northern New Mexico with Bristol, um, looking at all these old solar heating systems that he had designed or engineered or put in or serviced or had some interaction with. Um, and he was now installing these control systems to to improve the electrical efficiency of these heating systems. So I would say the access to like the gurus of the industry was kind of unprecedented um, here in northern New Mexico. And then Steve Baer from Zoneworks was around um, and uh, Ron Corio, who's been incredibly successful with Array Technologies. And yeah, so yeah, it, it was amazing timing to get into the industry and in, around the turn of the century, as you put it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it makes us feel old, I know. It does. What led you to step out on your own? Tell me about the journey to Cedar Mountain. Yeah, so I was really arrogant. Um, <laughs> I've, I've never started a sentence that way. <laughs> so I was working, I left Positive Energy when, after Y2K, business slowed down, and um, I had developed a relationship with Paul Benson at Dankoff Solar. And uh, so I moved over from Positive to Dankoff and uh, worked closely with Paul and and watched that business grow dramatically from 2000 to 2004. Um, I think it was in 2003 that California put its first grid connect. It wasn't a tax credit. It was a rebate program in place. And I think it was $5 a watt or something that, that you could get for putting solar in, in, in California. And the, and the industry just blew up, right? So I think my head got big. I think I took too much credit for our success and our growth. And Paul and I started to have some friction. And remember, I'm like 20, 27, 28. So, you know, thinking I'm, I'm hot stuff. And, and eventually Paul said, you know, maybe you do need to leave. Maybe you do need to, to go do your own thing, which was an incredibly mature and, and um, supportive thing for Paul to have done. And I said, okay, I'll go prove what I can do. And uh, before I started Cedar Mountain Solar, um, I was toying with the idea with another friend of mine of starting an aquaponics business, um, which I thought was going to be big. It is now getting big um, 15 years later, uh, but it would have been way too early. And I also worked for a nonprofit called Local Energy um, that was engineering a a district energy system, biomass-fired combined heat and power, which was an incredibly complex and fascinating project. Um, working with an Austrian engineering firm called BIOS uh, and uh, under a USDA grant um, that was intended to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires, of all things. So 
biomass-fired district energy was was an economically um, effective way to fund forest thinning projects, basically. So while those things were kind of percolating, I kept in touch with with Bristol uh, the whole time, and uh, and and he and I decided to start Cedar Mountain Solar because he had some customers who wanted consulting from him, but didn't know where to go to put in. To, to get installation, right? So they were getting engineering from Bristol, but he would basically like give them a list of mechanical contractors they could go to to actually get systems installed. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could integrate the engineering and, and installation and your customers could have a one-stop shop? We were off and running. Uh, he he had great contacts in the industry. All the architects in Northern New Mexico know if you want solar heating, you talk to Bristol. And uh, so that 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 kind of forged our partnership and um, path forward. It was great. Well, on the surface, as I listen to your story, I half expect to hear your, you know, being the kind of second coming of Wendy Dankoff and building a nice solar heating business and, you know, just furthering the the patronage in the New Mexico of uh, what was like a deep cultural heritage in, in off-grid and uh, water pumping and uh, testing the edges of what off-grid living could be. We both know that around I guess 2008, 2010, 2000, that kind of time frame, 2008, 2012 was the kind of the rise of solar PV and solar thermal went through a really hard time in every aspect. How did you get from solar thermal to solar PV, which is where you spent a fair amount of the last decade? Yeah. So in 2008, when the, when the housing bubble burst, um, I was at Cedar Mountain still with Bristol and two other partners. And we had never become profitable enough to sustain a kind of downturn. Basically, um, every every job we did was a was a science project. You know, on the order of four <laughs> or five hundred person hours to install, and uh, we were refining the control systems. with With each system we installed, we were kind of taking the next step with the next kind of control system, going from gold lines to tech Mars to using different kinds of thermostats and, and all kinds of things. So we were having a lot of callbacks to kind of tune systems. So it was, it was a very kind of custom, very high touch business. Um, and, and we never got it streamlined. So when the recession hit, um, we started running into cash flow problems pretty quickly. We did our best for two years to keep our customers and our employees and our suppliers all um, all lined up. But um, in 2010, uh, we had to shut it down. And I ended up filing for bankruptcy. And after, and I actually went through a divorce in the same year. Uh, so I was really happy to still be in touch with Paul. And by then, Jody Jody White and Paul had started Focused Energy. They'd left Conergy and started Focused. Um, and, and we'd kept in touch and uh, I was able to to come to Paul and say, "Hey, I'm I'm ready for just a steady job. I, I'm 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 done with this entrepreneur stuff. You were right, um, and and I'm not so arrogant anymore. And uh, I, I, it would be an honor to to work with Focused Energy. Uh, and and uh, the PV industry had changed radically in between, like." The number of cells in in modules had changed. We're using microinverters now. Um, the, you know, when I when I left, it was like the the trace 
SW was the industry standard, right, with battery-based grid tie, and now it's all end phase. Um, it, by the time I came back in 2010, so it was it was different, but in a cool way. You know, I had the pleasure of working with the Conergy folks, and then when Paul and Eric Jody spun off focused. Similarly, I, I had gone to. I was just going to get a job because our my startup had started to struggle through the same things that Cedar Mountain was going through. And uh, I remember just being really impressed with how together they were. I mean, Eric was my rep at Conergy and it was always a wonderful experience. And they had, they had a, you know, that great reputation. And so it was interesting to see how that came together. Uh, I want to lean in there in a minute. I think it would be useful for us to discuss uh, as you were creating this company, Cedar Mountain, you look at the career path that you uh, you've outlined on, on LinkedIn. I look at it and it seems like going from success to success. I would never have guessed that in 2010, you simultaneously went through a divorce and a business failure and was, and, and then we're able to, as I'm sure we'll get into like kind of fall into or be invited into this, another startup environment, which was by many, uh, aspects. I, in California, looking at it was like, how are they going to compete with DC power and some of these other players, sun, you know, sunwise, et cetera. What happened in that decade of sort of preparation that set you up for what I'm going to call success, where you've been tapped as a leader multiple times for increasingly larger roles in building the distribution model for United States solar? Uh, in particular, and I'm curious about how you overcome a business failure and a divorce. Most, fo- most folks kind of fall apart at that point. There's a lot to that, Nico. In terms of you would say, how, how did you prepare yourself? I'm not sure how conscious of a process it was at various times, right? That, that varied. But, but there are definitely some experiences I had that were, I, I would say, formative. For example, somewhere between 2008 and 2010, I went from not sleeping at night and having a huge amount of anxiety to finding a way to sleep at night. It wasn't by not caring about the people that I might be letting down as the business was was imploding, for lack of a better word. It wasn't that I stopped caring about letting them down or not, but it was definitely a process of acceptance, in particular of my own imperfection. <laughs> not just that the world can be a difficult place, um, which is all relative, but also that the presumptions that I went into this business with had come home to roost, right? I mentioned that I was arrogant, that I, I thought I'm just going to go crush it. And, and the truth is I formed the business with some preconceptions that didn't serve me long-term. So, so for example, one of the, the things that I thought was that, that I could create something based on let's say sheer talent or sheer gumption or something like that, which is, which is a little bit magical thinking. I wasn't an engineer. I didn't have a business background. I had a music background. I'd had some good experience for a few years with Paul at Positive Energy, but, you know, I wasn't capitalized. You know, I think I started the business with $3,000 or something and, and Bristol pushed his truck into the, in, in, into the middle of the table and I, I put my $3,000 in and we went for it, right? We didn't have a plan for the downturn. It, there was just a, like a lot of, we're going to make it because 
I think ultimately, Nico, because I thought I was special. Mm. <laughs> I, th- I think that's what I thought was gonna was gonna get us o- over the you know or into the end zone. So the process of letting go of those kinds of beliefs was healing, right? And and, and being able to say, I, I understand, I let people down, and uh, and I accept responsibility for that, but I don't have to beat myself up about it forever, right? That was mm. healing. Oh God, where were you in 2008 when I <laughs> needed, I needed that advice when my first company failed? I'm not sure I could have given it to you then, right? I, I was needing it from others. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I want to ask, and I, I'm really curious about, uh, I, I feel like I've got a little bit of insight uh, to some of the tools you use, but uh, up to you to sort of explain how how mechanically, like specifically you were able to come to this through this process of self-acceptance. Would you share a little bit about your journey to self-acceptance? Because I think it actually forms a, a big piece of the foundation of who you are as a CEO now. So I mentioned my, my family was really academically oriented and that gave me a lot of impetus to develop intellectually and rationally. But when I moved to New Mexico, um, I came across some folks who were uh, doing ayahuasca ceremonies, and that gave me the opening to develop non-intellectual, non-rational capacities. Right? We call it um, the d- development on the on the psychic or spiritual plane, or what have you. And then, after a chapter of that, um, going through a divorce put me in marriage counseling. And after a year of marriage counseling, I decided to stay in solo counseling for a while and really work on the emotional body, get comfortable with feelings, which you don't necessarily do when you grow up in an intellectually oriented household or, or when you are exploring your spiritual path. Uh, Ken Wilbur talks about cleaning up, waking up, and growing up as three pretty independent processes. They inform each other, but you have to do different work to do each of those things. I was fortunate enough to kind of go through these chapters and I think self-acceptance or vulnerability or, you know, what those kinds of things come out of a genuine engagement with one's true self, you know, with, you know, warts and all. You say a chapter of ayahuasca uh, tr- uh, of of plant medicine, uh, I feel I feel that might not do justice for folks who think, oh, uh, he went down to the Amazon and did uh, an ayahuasca journey. It was much more than that. Yeah, it was about ten years, uh, pretty much every week. So several hundred ceremonies, and there was a progression that's, there. That's its own level. That's its own level of uh, of dedication and commitment, right there. I'm really attached to growth. Um, it was it was a lot of suffering. The first fifty or seventy five were suffering, <laughs> and and I thought there's I can't wait to get out the other side of this and and have the experience that I think is possible. So I'm just going to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back, and and it cleared up eventually. And there was a process there too of you know um, I, I was fortunate again to be taken under somebody's wing and and taught the ropes and then participate as a, I I, I don't want to say leader because there's not like a a hierarchical structure, but, but helping to run ceremonies, um, which was 
a super cool experience. You know, I said that we might do an abbreviated version, but as I'm sitting here with my with my eyes welling up listening to your story, I find that I want to be selfish for the audience's sake and mine and better understand this, mainly because I feel like everybody I talk to lately is uh, on some level, and especially with the cultural phenomenon that is coming about, that is sort of this this awakening around plant medicine. Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss talk about it a lot. Um, it is seems to be in the cultural zeitgeist. There are books being written about it um, regularly. Johns Hopkins is studying uh, ayahuasca and DMDT and so many other sort of medicinal levers. I think that it's really instructive. Uh, I, I also am really attached to growth. And I think that folks that listen to Suncast tend to fall in that category. I didn't expect you to say 50 to 75 or suffering. <laughs> That that doesn't paint the picture of um, uh, awakening and and the waking up process that I think most of us would expect. Yeah, what's what's your response to that? I had some heavy trauma, uh, maybe unusually heavy trauma. Um, so my when I mentioned my parents earlier, those were my adopted parents. My biological parents oh, were okay. were killed in a in a bombing when I was ten weeks old, and um, I didn't necessarily have a clear picture of what I was dealing with, but the folks who were trying to help me grow experienced this, you know, this, this trauma that I was bringing into ceremonies with me uh, as, as a pretty heavy deal for, for a while. And it took me a while to separate myself from, let's say the, the residue of that trauma. And since it was so early, the kinds of thought forms that it that it created were pretty sticky and it and it and it just took a long time and a lot of work to understand what was me and what was trauma we had a discussion that i think we'll share in maybe some sort of bonus content in some way not bonus meaning you have to do something special for it just not in the nature of or in the context of the the remainder of this episode but Boaz and I did uh, explore more, a bit more about this conversation and his journey into plant medicine. And if that's interesting to you, feel free to reach out and I'll let you know how to get access to that. Maybe by the time we get this published, I'll have, uh, I'll have something in the outro that you can, uh, you can be clearly directed to. Boaz, I just want to acknowledge the courage uh, that is evident in your journey and the, the vulnerability that you've displayed here with, with me, I want to thank you for that because it's, it's so often that people come into something like a business podcast setting thinking, okay, I'm here to learn and grow. And we're all in some way attached to or addicted to growth, but not willing to look at the warts or not open to it. And I would encourage, you know, the Suncast tribe to really allow this moment as a place, and maybe you're not there and that's fine. We'll be moving on in a second, but allow this to be a place where you can, you can be yourself vulnerable and think about what Boaz is expressing. We all have this residue of our past that in, in material ways uh, instructs how we move forward and it hinders or it elevates. Uh, it's a wind at our back or in our face. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you, Nico. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's an honor to be talking about this stuff with you. Well, 2008, 2009, uh, the global financial crisis hits. Um, pardon the pun, but how did you get focused 
in your career again? Uh, so, so I hit up Paul, who I'd stayed in touch with. Um, he said, "Yep, come on board." And the, the that was in 2010, um, and the and the timing was, I mean, really ideal. I think the team was seven people or eight people then. By the end of 2010, uh, Paul and Jody said, I, "I think we need a head of sales. Would you be willing to do that?" And I thought about it, and, and I thought, I. I took this job because I didn't want to make any big decisions for a while, right? I'd, I'd made some big decisions and paid the price. So I want somebody else to make the big decisions. But then I thought, well, it's kind of what I'm here for. And it's time to to step back in and, and you know, ap- apply what I've learned um, instead, of, instead of hiding from it. Um, and then uh, a few months later, Bewa RE acquired Focused Energy. And a couple of years after that, Paul, well, not even a couple of years, um, but but Paul said, "Hey, would you be willing to consider taking over the CEO role? Because I think I'm gonna I'm gonna retire." And he he did it in in a very responsible way. I think we had an 18 month um, transition process. So so you know I could see what he was working on, how he was thinking about it, what kinds of decisions he was making. We also, and this was was profound, I thought, Nico, I, I would encourage anyone managing a transition to think about it this way. How am I different from him? Not how can I do what he's doing, but in what ways am I different? What are my strengths going to be? Um, and how do we capitalize on those? And what are my weaknesses? And how might we rebuild the executive team around me differently than it had been built around Paul in order to really support the the trip moving forward. And so that, that was a, a very supportive process and it, it made it uh, quite an, an easy transition. The only thing Paul did that I would, and he'll laugh about this when he listens, was tell me, you know, the, the company's doing fine. Well, you know, all you have to do is kind of sit in the captain's chair and pay attention. Just don't, you know, it, don't, don't let it go off course and everything will be cool. And in, in in the following year, I think prices dropped sixty percent or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and and then Solar City had fifty percent market share, and then CED comes along um, from becoming like a you know kind of fragmented, relatively small player to the biggest solar distributor in the industry, and it, it, it was anything but stay the course. It was nothing but radical change. And I should have known better. And, and so should have Paul, right? It, why, why would the solar coaster <laughs> stop doing what it does, right? Yeah. Well, you you said to me in a previous call that Paul and his team built a radically efficient and profitable mm. business in Focused. Help me understand what that means. And what were the disciplined set of philosophies that you mentioned in that conversation? Yeah, so- the company was called Focused Energy for a reason. It was incredibly highly focused, first of all, from a line card standpoint. Um, the company started selling Sanyo modules, and that was the only product it sold. <laughs> and then um, it became Enphase's launch partner, and then it was selling Sanyo modules and Enphase microinverters. And then little by little, it added a product at a time. But, but it was considered almost blasphemous to have a distribution business that wasn't broadline, but that only focused on a single product. So the discipline behind that was saying no. The founding team also had a really keen sense of not wasting energy 
or money on anything that wasn't essential. So the the original logo were the words focused energy in Times New Roman italicized. The initial website was one page with a phone number on it. You know, those kinds of decisions for the first several years, they had the money to, to you know, do those things differently. They could have hired a graphic designer to make them a really cool logo, but would it have generated more sales and uh, helped them uh, add customers? They decided no. They were just going to hammer the phones and, and, um, and build the business with no waste, really. Um, which, which not only did that help the business be very profitable, but it also helped the business be really good at what it did. I think um, a lot of us make the mistake in all aspects of life, as well as business, of trying to do too many things. And when we, when we recognize we might benefit by doing fewer things, we find we actually do those things more deeply and more completely. And our customers saw us as expert in the very few things that we did. They knew they could rely on the information we were giving them. Yes, we have it in stock or no, we don't, for example, can actually be kind of mysterious in a really complicated business. Whereas if you've only got one product and one warehouse, you're going to get it right. You know, um, So a lot of loyalty, I think, was won on, on the back of, of that kind of disciplined business model. Why was that attractive to Baywa? There were, there were no lack of companies that Baywa could have come in and bought in the U.S. at the time. I think the, the, the growth of the business, the profitability, and the, and the management team were, were probably all reasons. I wasn't on the Baywa side of the table for that transaction process, so, so I can only um, theorize. But uh, the management team was very experienced and knew exactly what it was doing. And I think the unconventionalness of the business was probably attractive too, that, that these, were, these were thoughtful people um, in focused energy who made very intentional choices about how they were going to spend their time and energy. And I, as an investor, I would value that. Um, whether I agreed or not with the decisions, I would value that these were carefully taken decisions and they weren't just following the status quo. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Did you ever think, man, I wish I could just text Nico. I have a question for him. Hey, Nico, where is your favorite Thai restaurant in Durham? Hey, Nico, what are the flight prices to Mexico City right now? Hey, Nico, where are you going to be staying in New Orleans this year for North America Smart Energy Week? If any of those questions have occurred to you or some other thing that you'd like to chat with me about, why don't you text me at 310-634-1780. I'm running a little test to see if I can actually get you as a listener to respond. So there you go. That's my number, 310-634-1780. Shoot me a text message. I'd like to know if you're going to North America Smart Energy Week 2021 in New Orleans. I'm going to be there. So why don't you take this opportunity to text 310-634-1780 and let me know, Nico, I'm going. Or Nico, you're crazy. Why in the heck would I be in New Orleans? We're still in a pandemic. Either way, I love you and I hope to see you there. And I hope that you'll text me. That number, again, is right there in your podcast player description if you click on it. Over the last decade, what has surprised you about the growth of the U.S. solar market and in turn the, the, the evolution of the distribution business with it? I think we're close to mainstream. And I think it's kind of surprising 
in the same way that your use of the phrase turn of the century was surprising. <laughs> um, <laughs> meaning you probably also always experienced this industry as we're kind of on the fringe, right? We're, we're the alternative uh -huh. energy. Mm -hmm. We're for the people that care about the environment, um, not just energy. And I think it's not surprising that we've gotten here, but it's surprising to suddenly be sitting, looking back and realizing we might actually be there, right? It's, it, uh, it's, right. I think we, we all knew renewable energy was, was going to be relevant in, in a sustainable way. But I think I'm surprised to find us in big boy businesses um, where, you know, th this is, this is a serious industry, um, and and a lot of a lot a lot of jobs have been created. A lot of huge solar power plants have been built. A lot of residential systems uh, companies have come and gone, and and we've I think we've kind of arrived. Um, and th this might be the beginning of that chapter, but but nonetheless, I think we're in it. Matt Harper at Infinity, formerly Avalon, said in his interview. I think that the biggest surprise will be that we will get to 2030 and we will have achieved our goals and we will look at it and say, oh my God, we had all of the tools we needed in 2021. We didn't need anything else. And for us, having been at this for 15 plus, 20 plus years, it's that old adage of the dog catching the tire, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> now what? <laughs> it's like, all right, well, what next? Yeah. And there's a lot of answers to the what next. Uh, I'd love to dig into kind of how you as a CEO have evolved in terms of like you've you've now expanded Baywai into Mexico as an example. What are some milestones that you are particularly proud of, of the team, of the business that you all have built as you've watched the distribution side of the business really undergird like this massive growth in residential solar? And commercial, mm -hmm. for that matter. A couple of things come to mind, and they're really different from one another. So, so one is, um, I just had an employee give his notice yesterday. I'm very disappointed to see him go. Talented guy. He has, he has very good reasons for leaving. Um, he's, he's going to another industry where he's being given a 10-state region that he's going to be responsible for. And it's, it's a great opportunity. I fully understand why he's leaving. But he said to me, well, not to me, he said to his manager, and I heard through his manager, I have really mixed feelings about leaving because working here has made me a better person. I know my work-life balance is going to go to shit, but I can't pass this opportunity up. And I'm leaving wistfully because I liked learning how to be a better person. And, and, and in some form, I want to keep doing that. And, and I, I you know, I was talking to his manager and I, I kind of stopped and said, you know what? I don't put a lot of stock in being proud of myself for things. Uh, it's usually a waste of energy, but I want to take a moment here. I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud that we built an organization where somebody could work with us and only for six months and, and leave saying they're a better person for having worked with us. So we've put a huge amount of energy into building an organization that's an engine of personal development. And we do that because we believe the outcome is the highest performing organization we could possibly have. Like there's a, there's just a philosophical connection there for us. 
So yeah, when you come in to our company, some of the first things you do, you get taught mindful exercises, mindfulness exercises. You get taught how to give and receive feedback effectively. Um, you get taught how to how to recognize the difference between feelings, beliefs, and facts. Um, those kinds of things that that are kind of just aimed at increasing self awareness, improving communication that kind of stuff, because we think we're going to serve our customers better and make better strategic choices and all that. If, if we're clear, if we have our heads on straight, basically. Is the, is the, I know, I know they have a second story, but is the culture setting and is that something that you've personally taken um, an active leading role yeah. in? Yeah. Full on. Um, the, and, and that, that's another part of the milestones that you asked about is a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. Sure. I was able to not have to do that as much anymore. The culture became self-generating. Yeah. And what mm-hmm. that looks like is the the tools that I was working hard to implement and to, you know that I was talking about all the time and, and you know we should use this tool in this situation and that tool in that situation and don't forget to use this tool. People started telling each other that without my reminding. And that I, it w- was was a huge turning point in my own development and in the organization's development. Do you have something that is in any way publicly public facing the way that Tony Shea and his culture book do? Do you have something that like uh, folks who would be really curious about what you specifically are talking about would be able to um, see that or follow we up? We have in some, some articles on our on our website solar distribution dot com, and there's a magazine section where we've written articles about some of the tools like the mindfulness exercises or um, how we manage transitions. I think there's an article called The Six Golden Rules of Transition Management. There are some resources, but I think there's a book in this. There's no magic to what we've done. We've just assembled kind of a set of tools that aligns with personal and organizational development, both internal and external. So you, you've probably seen these four quadrants. Um, Frederick Leloux has has a lot of content on the teal organization um, or, you know, self-managed organizations, holacracy, you know, th- things like that. A lot of them are based on this four quadrant model that says development is always happening in four areas, the individual and the collective, the internal and the external. Um, and so it kind of makes this matrix um, that you can drive continual improvement through. There's related content out there, and we've kind of put together a unique set of tools that are are driving towards that goal. And I think there is there is something to yeah. it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I will be watching with bated breath to see how that how that does evolve into some physical um, manifestation at some point. Because I agree with you. Just listening to it, I want. I want more, something more tangible than, than just hearing you talk about tools that I know you can't unpack in an mm-hmm. episode because it took you a decade to kind of come up with them and to, and to get them into place. But what a, what a fantastic, as you said, a milestone, a testament to the culture setting you've engaged in that at certain point that flywheel begins to generate its own momentum. And you can sit back and say, well, wait a minute, they get it. Oh, cool. They get it. It's happening. How did that become more important or even more apparent for you during this pandemic? So one of the first things we did 
I think it was on March 16th of 2020, was we started a daily internal town hall. And the idea behind that was we want everybody to get the same information at the same time, but also we want everyone to feel not, and and so that's a kind of intellectual support, but we also want people to feel emotionally supported and connected. That was an incredibly dynamic time. I mean, I've never been in an earthquake, but but the visual I have of the first month managing the COVID crisis was kind of like seismic shifts in the environment. Like, oh my God, is the global economy collapsing? Seriously? Right? Like that kind of, um, what do we do? <laughs> yeah. And do I have a yeah. job? Is yeah. this safe? So, so that internal town hall started out with what we call a four-line check-in, which is one of the tools in our toolkit. Um, and in a four-line check-in, you basically say, in my body, right? So, so I'll just do one right now. In, in my body, I'm feeling okay, sure. um, like, you know, a, a little tense in my lower back and in my shoulders. Um, and I might need a bio break in a little while. <laughs> in, my, in my heart, I'm feeling excited um, and, uh, and connected to you, actually. Um, in my mind, I'm feeling engaged. Uh, and in my spirit, I feel hopeful. Aho. So we'd start the, the internal town hall with that tool, everybody checking in with themselves. And then we just popcorn around, um, which, it, you know, so, so we, we just had people giving updates like, you know, our, our folks in San Francisco saying, well, this is getting scary. We, you know, they just announced the lockdown and there's a curfew and I don't know when I'm going to be able to get groceries, uh, popcorn to someone in New York. And they're, and they're saying, yeah, I heard they're going to be opening up field hospitals and, uh, and, and they shut down uh, all non-essential business and solar is not essential. So I'm feeling really scared. Uh, popcorn to you over in Georgia and it, like that. And so people were just able to jump right into sharing their real kind of raw experience. And I attribute that to our culture. I, I think in most businesses, maybe there was some attention paid to how people were feeling fleetingly at the beginning of the pandemic. Like, we want to support you, take the time you need, that kind of thing. But we were saying, bring your feelings to work with you. It's fine. We're all in this together. We'll figure it out. Let's just stay in communication and you know, show up for one another. And I think everyone's experience coming through that was of becoming closer as a team as a result. Wow, that is so cool. Thank you for sharing the four-line check-in. That's a tool that I will certainly use again. One of the things that I experienced in the pandemic was more time with my family specifically mm-hmm. because I had become addicted. I'd become addicted to travel. Really not recognized how much I loved getting on a plane and going away. In some ways going away from like, the hassle of, you know, dealing with three young children and trying to feed them three mm. times a day and working from home in that environment. Cause I always worked from home as a remote employee. You know, that's a difference that I didn't have in the pandemic is I knew exactly how to work from home, but I was surprised by how my routines changed when I no longer traveled. What, what was your experience in the pandemic as a leader? Night and day. The first couple of months of the pandemic, my routine changed, not necessarily for the better. I was probably working 14, 15 hours a day because I, I really 
I found it incredibly engaging, Nico. I mean, it was scary and, and weird and uncomfortable, but all of a sudden I needed to understand global macroeconomics and public health and epidemiology and how do I process all of the data and how do I, how do I determine what good data is and bad data? And then how do I process it to make business decisions, right? And, and then how do, I, how do I help restructure the business, which we did in, in four to six weeks or something, to, to play in this completely different environment. So we, we destroyed teams that had pre-existed and created completely new teams with completely new charters that were responsible for like scenario planning, uh, making sure that our customers were well cared for and starting our external town halls and like all kinds of new stuff came out of that. But it took a huge and very engaging effort. But after that, my my routine changed for the better in terms of my my physical health too and i've actually been thinking a lot about how when travel opens up again how am i going to keep this new routine moving forward cuz cuz i i get up at 5 now and um and every morning i'm doing some combination of yoga rowing machine going for a hike eating breakfast, uh, learning, like the, the reading of articles and listening to podcasts and that kind of stuff. It's all happening in the morning. Um, and then I start my day between seven and nine, depending on when my, my first calls of the day are. But I've got this like time in the morning to like really do self-care. I'm doing all my own cooking for for like a year straight now, and I've gotten good at it. <laughs> um, and hikes in the afternoon and on the weekends. When I was traveling, I was always having to recover from travel or prepare for travel. So losing at least a day on either end. And I never had a routine like this before. I feel like um, this is, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to live a long time, maintaining this routine is probably an important part of that. And, um, and, and I want, I want to, it feels really good. Um, So that'll be an interesting bridge to cross. I think for a lot of us, I don't, I don't think we're the only ones kind of looking at our at life structure differently. Well, I mentioned a book that I've recently had uh, the joy of reading. I know that you are as a philosopher and a deep reader um, moved by books. Is there one, a book or maybe a couple that you have gifted or recommended to folks in your world? One book that I'm reading now and probably will have to read several times more um, is Ken Wilber's Sex Ecology and Spirituality, um, which essentially is is an attempt to, and I think a good one, to provide an integrated theory of everything. I think he might have gone and done it. Um, so uh, I, I, I can't not recommend that. And I'd made a note that you mentioned Ken Wilber earlier, so I wanted to come back and see if that was from a book. I'm glad yeah. you brought that back. I actually read fiction um, as much as nonfiction. And uh, I've been rereading Fantastic. Cormac McCarthy's books. And uh, he lives here in New Mexico. And and some of his writing is about New Mexico or takes place in New Mexico. And man, is he brilliant with language. Um, like like no one. You know, you read a page <laughs> of his- Cormac McCarthy, is it, I'm not familiar with. Is there a book that I would um, start with? Well, you've probably seen movies based on his books, like The Road and No Country for Old Men. So you can start okay. with those. The, I think the best is Blood Meridian. Okay. My buddy basically said, like, how do you know if it'll work if you don't break it? And I was like, what the heck do you mean? And I was 28, 
starting my first company and he was working at Motorola. And then he said, do you know what my job is? I'm like, no, he said, quality assurance. I'm like, okay. And he goes at Motorola. I'm like, all right. And he goes, my entire job is to break every project the engineering team creates, like tinker with it until it breaks. I'm like, no way. He's like, yeah, it's the best job ever. And I'm like, why did I never think of that? Like Motorola has, and he's like, yeah, and it's not, I'm not the only one. Like we have a whole team of people whose job is to break Motorola's products so that we can make them better. And if you think about that in like physical terms, that's what going to the gym is, mm. right? And I, ch- I challenge anybody who would be listening to Suncast to think about like your daily activity. Right now, I'm breaking my calendar. Like I sat down with Alex this morning and I said, we're going to clean this thing. We're going to wipe it clean and I'm going to break everything I'm call. I like I hold true about how I think I organize the week and I'm going to rebuild it. And that's painful. It's time consuming. I like the the connection there, Nico, to kind of having to break our mental models. That's that's what I'm thinking when you're when you're going to the gym, you're like breaking down muscles so so they can be rebuilt. And, you know, I relate to the Motorola example too, right? Whenever we launch a new software process um, before we launch it, right? We have a team of people that try to break it. And we didn't do that the first few times. And the last thing you want is your customer to break right. it, right? That's right. Or, or break it in an unpredictable way. But yeah, I mean, we're always, I think, needing to break down how we think about things so we can think about things in new ways. I think that's like where I would want to take that yeah. metaphor. Do you have an example of how you've approached that in COVID? You know, one of the big things in COVID was thinking about organizational structure really differently. And that's what led us into this agile project that we implemented in in March. So one of the things that got us inspired was this McKinsey article that that talked about, I think there were there were five things that you have to do in an organization to manage a crisis effectively. And I'm, I might not get all five, but it was stay close to your customers, right? Understand what they're experiencing, um, shore up your supply chain, um, shore up your, your financial forecasting and, and, you know, make the, the plans you need to make to, to secure like a long-term financial secure position, financially secure position. There was also this part about, um, start planning for the future. Um, and and that's the part that caused us to change our structure the most. So we put these like scenario planning teams together and things like that. But we also created this coordination node because we realized to, 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 to navigate what COVID was throwing at us, we have to probably crank a new set of ideas into the business at a much higher rate than we had before. Like every week or two, we're, we want to change as opposed to every quarter. And so we needed like a group of people who could plan work um, and prioritize it, map it out, figure out how it's going to get resourced and hand it to the people who are going to do it. Um, so we took like our best coordinators, you know, for example, one, one of them was a director of sales. One of them was our um, head of our head of our people experience team that stop doing what you're doing. No more directing sales, no more people experience. You guys need to help us coordinate. Right. And we did that for like six weeks. We ran like all these design sprints and launched like new capabilities into the business. And once we realized we could do that, now we're like, maybe we should consider a full agile transformation for post COVID. Right. Cause um, this way of working is good for us. So Instead of saying, what do, you, what do you believe that's controversial? I say, tell me something that's true for you that very few people agree with you on. Yeah. So when I see 
LinkedIn posts or resumes or whatever, where people are saying they're in the solar industry to save the world, I kind of cringe. And, and I usually don't call them on it, but, um, but I don't believe we're saving the world by doing solar. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think renewable energy has an important place. Um, I'm excited to be in this industry. Um, it, it kind of represents how um, human beings are going to figure out how to come into balance with their, with their physical world in new ways. The, you know, the transition from fossil fuels to, to renewables is part of that for sure. But this idea of saving the world um, reminds me of the Karpman Triangle, which is a tool we use a ton in Bewa RE. It's also probably something that you're familiar with if you've ever done marriage counseling. That's where I picked it up. Uh, but basically, it's it's also called the Drama Triangle, right? Which which says all dysfunctional communication comes down to people taking one of three dysfunctional positions. The, the perpetrator, the rescuer, and the victim. And typically when one of us takes one of those positions, somebody takes another, right? So, so when we encounter a victim, we tend to fall into rescuer or perpetrator. Um, and each of those kinds of dysfunctional positions come with their own belief systems and kind of shadow material that we have to integrate so that we can find our way out of living in power struggles and trying to rescue and be rescued, trying to be right, trying to be blameless, trying to be uh, good, right? And, and kind of break down how we see ourselves in these kinds of dichotomous situations when, when the world is really a lot more complex and nuanced than that. So, so when I hear somebody saying we're saving the world, I think they're in a rescuer mindset, really trying to prove that they're good or that they're right and prove that to themselves. I want us to learn little by little, and this takes generations and generations. I want us to learn how to step outside of the power struggles we have with ourselves, the power struggles we have with each other, the power struggles we have with our environment and coexist without feeling like we have to save and be saved. I don't know how popular a perspective that would be on the renewable energy industry. And so what do you think with regard to like how people build businesses? How do you think about this little hinges that swing big doors? How does it apply directly to you and your life? A few things that are coming up for me, Nico. Um, one is, this reminds me of Jim Collins' hedgehog principle or hedgehog concept, right? Where if you as an individual or an organization can figure out what you do better than anyone, what you're passionate about and what drives your economic engine, like those three things and figure out what's in the nexus of those three things, you're going to be a little hinge moving a big door in some sense, right? You're going to make your choices based on that self-knowledge, the focus and the self-knowledge is the leverage um, in that example. Um, but I'm also thinking about the Dalai Lama. I, I follow a few people on Twitter, very few, I think 40 or 50, and he's one of them. And he posts something every few days that's something along the lines of, don't forget, the main idea here is to help ease the suffering of others. And so try to smile at somebody today. 
And that actually is a really meaningful way that I want to think about little hinges and big doors because because there is this butterfly effect always going on, right? We smile at somebody, we don't know how that's going to translate in greater and greater orders of magnitude as it resonates across the the neighborhood, right? I think, you know, to, to your question about how does this show up in my life, I don't, this is relevant to to my take on business, but I think to life in general, that we don't know how meaningful the little things we do are, whether they're well-intentioned or not well-intentioned, whether um, they're done with, with kind of clear ideals and underpinned by meaningful values or not. So we don't know. We, we don't, we can't predict the impacts of what we say and do. And everything we say and do is little, basically. <laughs> so let's try to make all the little things we say and do as compassionate, grounded in meaning and virtue as possible. I think those are the, the little hinges that matter to me. I, I get more bookings, but, but in the end, more bookings aren't as important as some other things. You know, touching people's lives, being of service, showing up with integrity, that kind of stuff. And, and, and I don't know. I don't know how many people I affect. It seems like not that many sometimes, but I got some really good advice once that I shouldn't assume that, that um, maybe the influence that I have on the small circle around me does resonate and kind of ripple into, into more and more um, of our larger community in a way that ends up being legacy. Is there a, a way that you like to be found? Is there a meaningful place where folks can engage with you? The easiest way to find me is probably just to send me an email, boaz.soifer at bewa-re.com. Um, you can also find me through our website and find some articles that I've written there at solar-distribution.com. You can find me through LinkedIn also. Um, the rest of social media I don't really use for for business. You know, all of that is is Baywa's art. Uh, Bewa RE's accounts. So, so you can find me through those too, but um, yeah, email um, is probably the quickest. Boaz, I'm going to wrap as we always do with uh, what I call the crystal ball question. What do you see happening in the near or uh, not so near future that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I don't know if this is happening, Nico. It's something that I'm curious about. So we've seen basically the the internet and the industrial age combined to create this globalized relationship to our world for a lot of people, like a a shockingly large number of people. Anybody that can get a cell phone can access a global universe of information. Anyone, almost anywhere in the world is trading in some way internationally. I'm really curious about how we integrate that movement into a relocalization. So we've seen kind of the the family, the certainly the extended family breakdown. I think we've seen the immediate family breakdown to a large degree in in Western civilization too. Um, we 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 see kids spending twelve hours a day on their computers or on their screens. We're bringing our food an average of a thousand miles, I think, to market. And and I don't I don't know if that's really good for us. <laughs> um, I see it as like a natural 
progression that we're moving through. Like I'm fine with it as like a chapter that we, that we have to move through, but it makes me really curious about the next chapter and whether the economic realities or the public health realities or social realities are going to kind of cause us to get off the computer and go outside and meet our neighbor and have our kids play together again. And, you know, like back to some of the the values that I think we've drifted from, how are we going to reintegrate those with this incredible information um, and globalization capability that we've developed as human beings? How, how do we bring that back in? And so I, I think it's going to happen. I don't know if that's in one generation or 10 generations and, and whether it's going to happen as a result of huge stress or just greater connection, you know, do we need to stress ourselves out in order to, to um, come back to who we really want to be? I hope not. I hope we can do it relatively painlessly, but I think we're going to grow our own food again in our communities. And I think we're going to, you know, I, I think, we need to we need to come back to that. So I, I don't know, maybe that is on everybody's radar, but that's something that I think about um, out on the horizon. Boaz Soifer is the director of solar trade at Bewa RE for the Americas, and this has been what, in my mind, is an insight into the philosopher CEO, a rare glimpse into the mind of someone who's had a chance to ride the the solar rocket, indeed the solar coaster, but the solar rocket for the last uh, ten plus years. Boaz, it is indeed a true honor to have a chance to just grab your time, which is extremely valuable, and and have you share from the depth of your wisdom. Thank you. And the Suncast Tribe, thanks you. Thank you, Nico. It's a pleasure, and I look forward to next time already. Hey, Warrior. Wow. I am just steeping in the wisdom here that my friend Boaz Soifer just blessed us with. How about you? What a way to vault into the 4th of July weekend. For many of you, it's a long weekend. I hope that you are safe and with family. If you're traveling, I hope that you are enjoying yourselves. And I hope that you're going to take some time to really reflect on what we've learned in this episode. You know, about halfway through, I promised that I would share with you the extra recording Boaz and I did where we actually do get into a deep discussion about ayahuasca and plant medicine and how he used it as a part of his journey. Now, if that sounds like it'd be interesting to you, just text me at 310-634-1780 and let me know that you'd like to hear the Boaz bonus session. That's also the best way that you can jump on the waiting list for the regional launch of our Suncast Guild, which is our inner circle where I often will be sharing this kind of bonus material. That's my number, and I do my best to keep up with it. So bear with me as I get back to you. The number again is 310-634-1780 for that Boaz bonus session. And if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and so much more at the blog at mysuncast.com. Click on episode show notes. I do hope you'll tune in next week for more tactical advice and practical insights to help you on your 
clean energy journey. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thank you once again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.